Thanks for listening to Reimagining the Internet from the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure at UMass Amherst. We're hosting an ongoing discussion with researchers, activists, academics, techies, and journalists about what's wrong with the internet and how we might fix it. I'm your host, Ethan Zuckerman. Welcome back to Reimagining the Internet. I'm your host, Ethan Zuckerman. I'm here with Dr. Elizabeth Hansen Shapiro. Uh, I am I am thrilled uh, for for both her and her husband Jake that there's now the uh, the Shapiro on the end of that. Uh, Dr. Hansen Shapiro is uh, the co-founder of the National Trust for News. She's a senior research fellow at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. She formerly led the News Sustainability and Business Models Project at the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, She is just an absolute top-notch researcher on media and its implications for democratic society. And she is my collaborator uh, on a new report that we are releasing uh, later this month that looks at uh, research of the big uh, digital public platforms. Elizabeth, I'm so glad to have you here. Ethan, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. So this is a weird conversation, right? Because I am going to interview you about a report that you and I are co-authoring. So I don't want to hide the ball here and and pretend that um you know i i'm asking questions about a topic where i know nothing on the other hand it's going to be more fun if i can get you to talk about this and it's worth noting that you know you and i have had disagreements throughout the process of doing this and this is the great thing about working with people smarter than you are is that they can they can talk you out of your own ideas on this what's this report who's it coming out for when is it coming out why are we doing it yeah, sure. So um, this report is for the NetGain Partnership, which is um, a group of foundations that have been supporting the work of platform researchers. And they really wanted us to kind of dig into the state of play um, that, you know, these amazing researchers and activists and journalists, I should say, are facing as they're trying to gather um, data on and about platforms to answer some really important questions um, about, you know, what's what does the spread of misinformation look like? Um, How are these platforms and the interactions that are happening on top of them affecting our society and democracy? Um, and, you know, it's been kind of a um, a rolling uh, drama, I would say, since 2018 in Cambridge Analytica in terms of what's been available and not available. So this was really our attempt to help them see the landscape clearly, um, to try to understand both what problems um, are out there that researchers and journalists and advocates are pursuing and what the challenges and opportunities are around the data that they have access to from social media platforms. So for, for the purposes of, of this report that we're working on, what what's a platform? What what do we consider a platform? And um and what do researchers want to know about them? Yeah, so you know, I think Ethan, you and I went back and forth on this question of what what is a platform and, and how do we de- define it for the purposes of this um this inquiry. And you know, where we where we landed in defining platform is that these are, you know, these are essentially media platforms where users can post their ideas in various forms. So that could be text or that could be audio or that could be video. Um, And these are usually free services. 
So they're monetized by advertising on the platform side. So the kind of like platform, uh, traditional platform function of a social media platform is to really um, bring together those advertisers, marketers, the users who are um, creating content. So this includes Facebook, it includes Twitter, it includes YouTube. Um, how, how broad, how complicated is this universe that researchers are trying to study? Um, you know, I'd say it's, it's, it's broad and complicated and getting more broad and complicated every day. So, you know, on the one hand, we have Facebook, um, which has billions of users across the world. So we kind of like think of them as the sort of, you know, 800,000 pound gorilla, but then there's all kinds of other platforms, um, that are kind of ancillary to them, like you know, Twitter, YouTube is also another kind of 800,000 pound gorilla. But then we have smaller platforms like Gab or what used to be Parler um, that are kind of growing up to meet little user um, um, niche needs um, with similar services. And, and this, of course, has been one of the things that's been so challenging about writing this. We turned in a draft of this uh, before the Capitol riot. And we talked about the importance of being able to study platforms like Gab and Parler. And then suddenly we had this um, very clear example uh, of why it was so important to study them. Um, so this is really a study of how researchers are trying to get information from these different platforms. What are the different strategies that they're using? First of all, what what do academic and activist and journalistic researchers want to know? What are the sorts of questions yeah. people are asking of Facebook, of YouTube, of Parler, of, of all these different spaces? Yeah. So, you know, I think there's there's a set of questions that are around the kind of content itself, right? So like what is the nature of the content that's getting that's getting shared? Um, there's a set of questions around how is it getting shared? So like what is the spread? Um, what does the spread look like? What does it look like when a particular piece of content, you know, goes viral or moves through a particular network? And, you know, the real challenge, particularly on a, on a um, platform like Facebook, is that when you start to answer those content questions, you immediately bump up against this problem that the data that's available around reach is different than the uh, data that's available around engagement. And Ethan, I know you've thought a lot about this problem. So maybe you can give your your version of um, the barriers to answering those kinds of questions. Sure. I mean, one way to think about this is that a platform like Twitter is mostly a public platform, right? Generally, when you're tweeting, the vast majority of tweets are not protected. They're going out to the entire world. And you can look and, and maybe make some estimates about reach, how many people are seeing them. You can certainly see information like how many people liked them, how many people retweeted them and shared them. Facebook is a different critter. Um, and most Facebook feeds are private. They're shared with a small number of people. And so even asking a question like, how often did this URL appear on Facebook can be somewhat controversial. You're basically asking for an aggregate of, of people's private sharing. Facebook reveals some of this information. There are tools like CrowdTangle that make it possible to say, this post by Dan Bongino got lots of engagement. Many people liked it, many people shared it. 
What we don't know is how many people have seen a given post, the actual reach of these things. And so far, Facebook, for the most part, isn't giving us that data. We just interviewed Julia Ongwen of The Markup and her Citizen Browser Project, which is one of the things that we write about in this report. And that's really the first effort that's making a guess at what the reach is of some of these things. But Elizabeth, one of the things I found so fascinating about writing this with you, I'm a researcher, I generally just want to grab the platforms and kind of shake all the data out of them. You made a very convincing case that the platforms often have a really good reason why it's hard to share this data. Make make that case for me. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think what I heard from our interviews um, about why it's hard for platforms to share this data is that there is a whole, um, at the highest level, you know, there's a whole thicket of privacy um, regulations both domestically and especially, you know, globally coming out of the European Union that actually make it um, legally risky for platforms to share this data. And, you know, those are, those are not, um, those are not concerns that we should um, take, take lightly. You know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal was a scandal because there was personally identifiable information that users did not consent to be released that was, you know, released to researchers and beyond. So, um, so, so those privacy considerations and the constraints on platforms that are created by those privacy regulations are are real. Um, and I think a lot of the kind of risk management and internal um, decision making around data access turns on those questions of privacy regulations and the risk that comes from making potentially identifiable information, um, quote unquote, public, even if that quote unquote public is um, you know, a group of academic researchers. One of the things that happened with this report is it's happening in the wake of a research project called Social Science One. And Social Science One was this very ambitious research effort um, organized by a pair of just top social scientists to work with Facebook to open up a data set um, in particular to study political influence and elections and sort of Facebook's role within it. Despite the fact that um, the academics who, who started the project had great contacts within Facebook, and despite the fact that the people the data was opened up to were a set of accomplished academics who'd been very carefully screened, Facebook had a really hard time opening up the data. And many of the people who were involved with the project ended up just incredibly frustrated. One of the interesting things, though, is that there's lots of what you might consider to be informal data collection. Tell, tell us a little bit about some of the people like PushShift who are, are doing this work informally. Yeah, so I think that, you know, part of the interesting finding for me and kind of doing this exercise of mapping the landscape on the methodology side is that people are really, you know, attacking this problem of platform data access in a variety of ways. So, you know, social science one was a sort of official attempt to create a front door to some of this data for Facebook, but, you know, push shift and others are engaging in their own scraping of, um, of platform data, which is, 
what we categorize in the paper as unsanctioned. So they are absolutely um, taking on some legal risk in doing this. Um, but they are, but they are doing it, and they are engaged in a kind of interesting and ongoing cat and mouse game as some of these platforms attempt to shut off their access um, and, you know, detect their their scraping efforts. Um, but that's really, you know, that's a that's a side door that some of these intrepid researchers are creating to scrape publicly publicly available data or data that, that you can get from, you know, a handful of kind of logged in. Um, logged in users and to and to collate that across platforms. So it's not just that there's a single platform under study, but the really cool thing about PushShift is that they're looking across um, across platforms. Yeah, PushShift is remarkable. It's a guy named Jason Baumgartner um, who started scraping Reddit years ago and has created um, sort of the, the only major scholarly repository of Reddit. Um, and he's gone on to do um, work on Telegram. He's been doing collection work on Gab. Um, we saw well. what's that? And Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah. No, he's he's. Although you know, of course, that's another change that's happened in all of this during the time that we wrote this. Twitter has now um, significantly opened its research API. It's not as clear to me whether Jason will continue doing the Twitter work now that now that this is so much more accessible. Um, this is the moment where I, you know, rip off my sweater and show that I'm wearing the uh, the markup scraping is not a crime T-shirt. Uh, of course, the challenge is um, some of these efforts actually are coming under legal scrutiny. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, the NYU Ad Observatory? Yeah. So the the NYU Ad Observatory um, created a browser plugin that would allow um, you know web. Uh, web social media users like you and me um, to install this in our browser, and then they would collect um, data using that plugin from our Facebook feeds. Um, now, sometime in, I want to say it was November, um, Facebook sent a letter to them saying, this, is, this violates our terms of service, please cease and desist. Um, and, you know, this caused... Um, a kerfuffle amongst the researchers that we've been studying and working with, um, because this kind of uh, methodology is really one of those ways to get around some of these data access issues and um, and to actually you know go, go right at the problem of user consent. So if you are a user and you are consenting to um, plugging this uh, this this um, tool into your browser, you are essentially saying. Um, yes, researcher, it is okay for you um, to collect this data. And of course, for us as researchers who've um, been trained to uh, respect user consent and to work with our IRBs, that's that's a hugely important um, component to doing high quality ethical research. So, you know, it was a really interesting example of how um, even if you can net out the problems of user consent, there may still be some residual platform um, resistance to to uh, to those kinds of collection methods. Our, 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 our early indications on uh, the NYU Ad Observatory is that Facebook is making the argument that the users can't consent to do that, um, which is interesting, right? On, on the one hand, um, it's quite possible that Facebook's terms of service um, is interpretable in a way that says you can't give anyone unauthorized access to this. You know, at the same time, it seems like what I see on Facebook is something that I should have control over whether I share it with someone else. That isn't, you know, a trade secret, what Facebook is showing to me versus someone else. 
there are things that researchers want to study um, that just aren't likely ever to be released. Can you talk about people who are trying to study moderation decisions? Yeah, um, and I think uh, Ethan, you should weigh in here because I think some of those some of those um, interviews were also were also yours. But but part you know part of what I I heard in the uh, amongst the researchers who are looking at moderation decisions is that it can be very difficult. Um, it can be very difficult to study um, takedowns kind of after they happen. And so getting some kind of deep retrospective, like long-term longitudinal view of the, the outcome of those decisions can actually be incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, and it's also, you know, it's also difficult to study at a policy level, like to what extent um, the stated policies are actually um, being followed through and what the results of those are and kind of what the distribution of those um, content moderation decisions actually actually is. Well, well, I'm curious what you what you heard from. Yeah, I, I so one of the things I would say is um, a lot of the research that people are doing is is descriptive, right? It's basically um, who's tweeting about what and who's sharing what content and what URLs are are you know most prominent. When you start studying things like moderation decisions, you're often actually moving into the realm of an audit, and you're trying to ask the question of are a company's processes fair or not? So for instance, um, Palestinians have long complained that their content gets taken down much more often than Israeli content does. Um, that's something that should be auditable, right? It should be possible to look in there and sort of say, um, you know, Israeli posts that are pro-Israel get taken down at this rate, Palestinian posts that are pro-Palestine get taken down at this rate. Uh, Black Lives Matter protesters um, have complained about this. There's been uh, a big dialogue um, within some some black rights communities suggesting that criticizing whiteness um, is a way of getting taken down. It would be really nice to be able to sort of come in and evaluate those things. Those tend to be um, information that platforms hold very tight to. Um, handing out information instead of saying, here is content that came in and we decided to take it down. You can imagine uh, the ways in which this could be very dangerous for a platform, right? Th this is content that they took down in part because they didn't want to get sued or they were afraid of liability around it. In the long run, uh, Elizabeth, how, how do we study these things? Is this something that independent researchers and journalists can study? Does the government have to get involved? Um, are there audit strategies that sort of get us there? You mean uh, particularly on the moderation front or? or, or I, I would say in, in, in general, right? So, so if one camp says, let's just scrape the heck out of this, right? Let's, let's go to the courts. We're going to scrape as much as we can. We're going to study it. We have sort of a Julia Ongwin camp that says, put plugins in the browsers, let's see it from the user point of view. That's almost certainly going to get litigated. There's a camp that says, if the platforms were just good citizens and gave us APIs like Twitter you know, recently did, we'd solve the problem. But it still seems like there's cases like moderation where we need something much closer to an audit system. Yeah. So, you know, Ethan, I think, I think we, um, together did a really good job, um, coming at this with, you know, different perspectives and sometimes, um, different, different opinions, um, to, to assemble a range of options, because I think, you know, in this, 
in this space, as in many others, like there is no silver bullet. And so, you know, it really does have to be a combination of like cooperation, co-optation and like opposition, I think, uh, strategy, data collection strategies to, to get us there. And, you know, under the cooperation front, I think as flawed as social science one was and as frustrating as it was for its participants, you know, it's an important kind of first step to figuring out what a cooperative model looks like and what the constraints and interests are on both sides. And, you know, what happens when lots of um, talk about cooperation actually meets like governance and workflow decisions. Um, and so, you know, my sense is from talking with the researchers in the study that like that will continue and that's a productive and important avenue to keep open. But, you know, that is not to the exclusion, I think, of um, of these oppositional efforts, for sure. And it's also not to the exclusion, I think, of, of regulatory approaches, some of which we can talk about. Um, and it's, you know, and it's not to the, it's not to the exclusion, I think, of new, um, the call for new civil society institutions that can do this, because there are definitely whole sections of this problem that are not going to be solved by regulation, are not going to be solved by cooperation, are not going to be solved by individuals, you know, banding together in oppositional data collection, but can actually be solved by, you know, audit bodies, for example. So, um, so let's, you know, so let's, let's dig into yeah. those two things. Talk, talk to me first about, so regulatory solutions. What, what are some of the frameworks that people are thinking about to make data more accessible or at least more accessible to, to someone? The first area where I think there's some promise, and in some ways this is kind of starting small, but um, you know, Ethan, you and I have had some discussions um, with the Knight First Amendment Institute around supporting a researcher safe harbor, um, particularly for the um, the CFAA. So you know, a kind of targeted kind of scalpel approach that goes directly to this argument about violations of terms of service that platforms can engage in in order to stop the kinds of data collection like the like the um, uh, NYU ad observatory. Uh, a safe a, a safe harbor exception in the CFAA, I think, would would really help. Um, right. The, the Computer yeah. Fraud and Abuse Act um, you know, has been around since 1986. It's it's often used or abused um, as a cudgel against researchers, essentially saying um, we, we're not going to distinguish between a research use of a platform and hacking that platform uh, and having a researcher safe harbor under CFAA and similar laws uh, is one possible step forward. Now, I think that, you know, the asterisks on that, which you and I have talked about over the course of writing this paper is that then the question is, well, who is a researcher and who gets to say who is a researcher? Um, and if we if we call out researchers um, in particular, are we then also excluding folks like Julia at the markup and other, you know, advocacy groups that might want to engage in similar or um, even the pseudonymous folks who scraped parlor and made it accessible uh, as a tool for people to understand the uh, the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Exactly. So a researcher safe harbor, you know, may, may or may not help those folks. And that's really important work. So we want to be we want to be care careful of that. Um, you know, I think there's as, as you and I have periodically discussed, there's a whole thicket 
and I and I mean thicket in every sense of that word, of um, regulatory policy coming out of the European Union that has tried to get at this, a version of this researcher exception. And, you know, from what we heard is kind of at some level creating more problems than it solves. But, you know, the the advantage to our European friends, like cutting that Gordian knot and really figuring out at the EU level what um, some some research exemptions would be would actually help the rest of us because so much of that policy is kind of like the master policy um, for research work here as well, just because of how platforms are tuning their, their, their policy decisions. So that's, you know, that's another kind of like in the realm of the possible, um, but difficult. The other, I think, interesting and important uh, long-term kind of tectonic policy shift that I think would be very interesting is a complete reclassification here domestically of social media platforms as common carriers. And we had a couple of very interesting off the record conversations um, informing this report with folks in DC who really feel like, you know, a reclassification of social platforms as under common carrier legislation would open up a range of um, rulemaking possibilities that could really help us make progress on this. Um, researcher access and data access. Um, and, and part of what might become possible in a common carrier situation is that um, platforms might become significantly more audible and, and there might be a, um, a federal level regulatory response that said that platforms were audible in certain ways. Uh, one of the wackiest ideas in this report uh, that we ended up sort of putting out there is this idea that you might almost imagine algorithmic auditors um, who are not unlike uh, the ways in which publicly traded businesses are fiscally audited to make sure that they're following uh, best accounting practices. Uh, of course, part of what you know happens in this is we don't know what a best algorithmic practice is. And uh, our folks in the FAIR community who are sort of trying to figure out um, you know, questions of equity and fairness in AI um, that's going to be a really, really open topic if we sort of get to um, that place. Uh, Elizabeth, let me say, for me, maybe the biggest surprise um, in all of this work was this idea of a tension between privacy advocates and researchers. Um, no one, I think, wanted to say, damn you, privacy advocates, but it was often a situation where researchers who really want to understand what was happening on these platforms found themselves in tension with privacy advocates. And of course, many of these players um, see themselves as allies. They're funded by some of the same groups. Uh, this was a really interesting thing to be bringing back to net gain. And anything that really surprised you in this work? Yeah, I think that I think I was surprised right along with you about that tension between privacy um, advocates and research um, and and researchers. And I think it's you know it's those kinds of values conflicts that I think um, are really driving this. And I think the you know the the kind of business model and profit motivation and kind of like risk um, risk tolerance of platforms for giving data access 
it's still it's still there, but I think it would be a very important and consequential contribution of this paper if we can help shift the conversation around these issues to um, the tension between privacy and um, and the kind of like social good of general knowledge that researchers and journalists and activists, um, you know, stand on top of. Because I think if we can make progress on on that kind of values conflict, then we have a shot at getting the rest of it in line. This is ultimately a very hopeful show that we do here. We sort of bring people on to sort of imagine positive futures. Um, what what was maybe your your happiest moment in in writing this? Were, were there um, scenarios or sort of futures that you looked at and said, "Wow, maybe that actually will will make real progress for us." So, so Ethan, I I am a I am a pragmatic researcher, and I like pride myself on being you know practical, but I am also at heart, like a dreamer and an optimist. And I have to say the most exciting conversations I had were around this common carrier reclassification, because I think it would be such a game changer, not just for these issues, but for all of the kind of other issues that are attached to this one that have to do with um, platform regulation. And that would be the kind of like, you know, era defining shift that would really change the terms of debate on um, this issue and a whole host of others. So that was the, for me, that was the most hopeful. And, you know, and it was hopeful because I think the way one policymaker framed it to me was like, we have this legislation. Like, it's not like we have to write something new, like these powers exist. It's a category definition shift um, that we would have to pull off, but it's not as if we have to figure out an entirely new, complicated intellectual regime for um, getting us the the rulemaking and regulatory powers that um, that we would want. Elizabeth, it's a very special sort of optimist for whom, you know, a new government regulatory bureaucracy <laughs> is is the optimistic outcome. Um, I, I honestly came out of this process just like more in love with Julia Ongwin, basically, like the, this notion that what we need are better tools for individuals to get together and donate data. We haven't talked much about this yet, but um, Mozilla... Uh, is working on a project that allows people to donate browser data um, that is working at just an incredible scale. Um, that gave me an enormous amount of hope uh, coming out of this. Um, it's an incredibly complex issue. It's a real thicket, uh, as, as you've used the term. W what are your aspirations for the report? In, in, a, in a perfect world, um, who reads this and what comes out of it? Yeah. Well, I'm excited for for our um, funder community to read it because I think one area, um, one area that we didn't probe in the report and actually now that we have another week or so to make, to make final edits, we might wanna, we might wanna um, consider, you know, funders exert a lot of, a lot of influence in the space, not only through the problems and people that they choose to fund, but also the terms on which they choose to fund them. And so I think one immediate um, an important access would be that funders themselves take the risk of building in some kind of best practices into their, um, you know, into their grant agreements around, you know, private around these this problem of privacy versus access. And I think that would be a really important stake in the ground, and that would be a good use of their symbolic and um, funder weight to do that. So. You know, I hope they read this and and take away that there's that there's many fronts on which they can push forward um, immediately. 
And since you're editing the conclusion, that sounds like something that you could add. <laughs> <laughs> I don't so look, one one of my great joys as a researcher is is getting to work with just uh, extraordinary other figures out there. Uh, Doctor Elizabeth Hansen Shapiro is one of those extraordinary figures. Uh, we're really looking forward um, to having this report come out. We would be remiss uh, if we didn't point out that our friend uh, Mike Sugarman, who's producing this podcast. Uh, was the lead researcher on all of this. We should also mention that our good friend Fernando Bermejo uh, and Laurie Lejeune have both been involved with sort of reading and editing uh, as we're getting this out. Um, this report will be out at the same time that we put out this podcast. We will add some URLs to it. Um, uh, Elizabeth Hansen Shapiro, you are someone that we look forward to having back often because you're working on so many different things. Um, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Ethan. It's been a real pleasure to work on this important topic with you and to be on the show. Reimagining the Internet is hosted by me, Ethan Zuckerman, and produced by Mike Sugarman, who also composed our theme song. Visit publicinfrastructure.org for more information about the launch of our research center at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in spring 2021. And please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you.